This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On a February morning in 1968, the body of a young woman was found lying beside the door to a garage in this lane, just a few streets from her home. Her name was Patricia Docker. 18 months later, a woman called Jemima MacDonald, who lived here in McKeith Street, was found dead in a derelict building just next to the little flat where she stayed with her three children. Three months later, a man taking his dog out in a back court in Earl Street found a woman lying against a wall. She was Helen Puttock. All three women were killed after a night out dancing at Glasgow's Barrowland Ballroom. The killings were linked by detectives and came to be known as the Bible John murders. Back in 1996, I uncovered some of the police notes from the original investigation. Recently, I looked at those notes again. Deceased appears to enjoy the company of men and liked the attention of men. She appeared to be extremely fond of male company and highly promiscuous. Mrs. Puttock was said to be fond of a good time. These victims of murder were being judged, blamed for what happened to them. But 27-year-old me didn't see that blatant misogyny at all. Now it's time that these police notes were made public and I made amends by telling these women's stories in as much detail as I can. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, in this episode, I'm rejoined by award-winning writer and reporter Audrey Gillen. As I said in part one, please do listen to Audrey and her team's 10-part series, Bible John, Creation of a Serial Killer, as we discuss the case in depth and Audrey's incredible work investigating the murders of Patricia Docker, Jemima MacDonald and Helen Puttock. Audrey uncovers new information and shocking revelations about the case, and I get into it with Audrey in this episode and share my analysis based on her findings. As always, listener discretion is advised. Okay, so without further ado, let's dive back in where we left off. That's what that officer was saying to me just in the last couple of days, that the basics were never done. It's an absolute scandal that, you know, so many mistakes were made. And so, like, he he can only speak to Helen. 
she was singularly failed. But we can look back at Patricia and we know that they didn't get very far very quickly in terms of the golden hour and and all of that. And um, they just moved on to something else. Her investigation was closed down really quickly. But um, there are things to say about that in the sense of, you know, I looked at the pictures of the police officers uh, coming along the lane to where Helen's body was found, which which was outside a parking, an individual parking garage. They're treading along. I know things that were completely different then in terms of evidence and DNA and science and all of this. But what I do know is that young officers were brought up, told to go up and look at the body of this naked woman lying in a lane. And to me, when I look at that picture, it's just the absolute epitome of all of this and you know how it began with her being inspected as a specimen or something to learn from by these young officers and then very quickly the whole thing was closed down because they failed to to be able to investigate it properly. Yes I mean huge problems there I mean in terms of evidence and forensics we have moved much further along as you say But that initial starburst of an investigation is absolutely critical. I would say it is actually the 72 hours afterwards, and then cases can go cold very quickly if you don't do the basics well and the first time right time. You don't get a second chance at evidence recovery or an investigation, or you've got to really understand what you're dealing with right from the start and prioritise it. And I think too often, even when we have missing persons cases, the first 72 hours, they're not treated as a priority. I'm thinking about Claudia Lawrence, Susie Lamplew, Melanie Hall. And, you know, the police have the attitude, well, we've got so many cases, we move on to the next case. But actually, you had 72 hours to follow key lines of investigation and evidence, and then the case goes cold thereafter. And if you miss that window, it's hugely problematic if you don't link the right cases as well. And there can be cases that if you link the right ones, it can take you straight to the perpetrator. And that's why my unit was so important in terms of dispelling myths and getting in early to help with senior investigating officers' decision-making about what was a priority and what wasn't. But I think that these three cases in particular, and there may well have been more. I mean, that's the difficulty that everyone's now looking backwards. You don't know what other cases there were where maybe there were attempted rapes, rapes, cases where women got away near misses, where he didn't manage to overpower them and then kill them. Because it it does sound to me with this particular, with Patricia, with Helen and with Jemima, that there was a sense of comfort, i.e. they felt safe with whoever he was. And then there was a blitz attack and they were punched. And that's when they were overpowered. Well, there may be women who did get away And of course, they could take you closer to who the person was if you have a living witness. But back in these times where you don't have forensics or, you know, it really was only coming in in the late 90s, then you're going to miss all sorts of opportunities if you're not asking the right questions at the scene, house to house. And you've got a picture in your mind about who the person is who did this. And it's so far off the person who really did do it that you're just chasing a ghost effectively, which to me, it sounds like that's what's happened. Can that be course corrected? Well, I think if Police Scotland listened to your podcast, and I think you mentioned that they were and that they are taking notice, and I hope that is the case. 
Yeah, Laura, so they said, though, when they issued a statement saying that they were listening to the podcast together with the Crown Office. But that was more than two or three months ago. And uh, I do know that no one has heard anything, anyone that I've spoken to has heard anything of that. So, Well, I hope that they do follow up and there must be enough momentum created to ensure that they do. I mean, this case is not going to go away. And as you said, it's just going to be regurgitated probably with all the wrong facts and information. But it's solvable. I believe all cases are solvable. Someone knows something. And over time, sometimes that's your better opportunity because loyalties change and things may have been said or with the right information being put out there, it could jog a memory and something that assumes more significance later on. And I do believe that, you know, if you break down this case, and I will just share with you where where I landed and why I was so intrigued by what you said in, well, all of the podcast in the wake of Peter Tobin dying as well late last year, is that there's also been journalists and others who have linked Peter Tobin to this case. And I've always felt that that was wrong. And having worked... Me too. Yeah, so that's when we first connected, because I was very intrigued to know where you had landed. Yeah, when I said to you, you might notice Peter Tobin's name is not mentioned in my podcast, and that I also was there in one of his trials. It didn't even occur to me that Peter Tobin was Bible John, and just looking at the horrible man in the dock, didn't even, and I never ever have. No, and I didn't either. And for my listeners, we're referencing a case that um, assumed a lot of media interest and the murders were that, that we knew about at the time were of Angelica Kluke up in, up in Glasgow. Her body was found in a, in a church. It was stumbled upon, actually. It wasn't an active investigation. And then Vicky Hamilton, who also went missing up in Scotland, and Dinah McNichol, who was down in Chelmsford, and she was abducted and killed by Peter Tobin. And we know that there were more cases, actually. And I was involved working with David Swindle on the what else might be linked part of that investigation. And David is a brilliant senior investigating officer. And, and what I will say is he was dogged by, the whole investigation was by dogged by people in the media and one person in particular who kept linking Bible John and saying that Peter Tobin, they were one in the same with no real information or evidence to support that. And that's hugely problematic. So I was very interested to know where you might land at a time where Peter Tobin was back in the media. And that's really how we connected. You were still doing the podcast at the time. So I was very intrigued as to, to where you were with that. It is problematic when people do link the wrong cases and particularly when they haven't been part of the investigations. And and then that becomes part of the myth because, I mean, if you were just to go onto Twitter and put in Bible John and Peter Tobin, you'll see someone asking, is Peter Tobin Bible John all the time? And indeed you reference, you know, people have written books claiming that he absolutely was. But it's so speculative, you know, to me... I read that book, I read these theories, and to me, it just it just doesn't wash. But, I mean, as I say in the podcast, I'm a journalist, I'm not a detective. You would know more than me why you say, no, it doesn't add up. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? 
Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Firstly, I mean, I'll take the three cases that you've centered on, Patricia, Jemima and Helen. And when I do behavioral analysis of cases, I don't focus on who might be the suspect. That part really is not in my consciousness, nor should it be when I'm thinking about what's gone on, how a victim was targeted, their victimology. And I want to know everything about them. And that's why your podcast is so important, because it gives so much more information than what we've ever had before. And information from those who knew them, their family life and victimology and the modus operandi, the what happened and the crime scene assessment is really important. And of course, there's a lot that's not known. The photos and that I would normally want to see or going to a scene, I'll talk about geography in a minute, but what happened at the actual crime scene, that also holds a mirror up to the perpetrator and the geography you know, the intention of going to a target-rich environment to find a particular victim in a particular location for a particular reason. And here we've got the barrel lands in Glasgow, a target-rich environment, as I called it. It's the environment that's high risk. It's not the victims going there who are just going about their day-to-day -day life. And the suspect is the last part. And so when I was listening to your 10-part series, I was thinking, well, victimology 
there are similarities here. Even in terms of these terrible photos that are out there, they have a similar look, similar ages, attractive, well-turned out young women who happen to be mothers. The killer may not know that if it is one person, of course. They happen to be menstruating. They happen to be separated from their partners. But I do think what's important is whoever they were with, well, they were travelling home. They were found close to home. So there must have been a level of feeling safe or comfortable with that person if they were travelling from the Barrowlands back to their home address or close to their home address with them. So that holds a mirror up to a perpetrator or perpetrators if you go willingly with someone. So there are a number of points with the, with the victimology and the method in terms of how they're killed. Well, they're beaten and punched in the face. Now, that tells me it's much more likely to overpower. And it probably came as a surprise to them that once they're lulled into this false sense of security, then they're struck, which is what we would call a confidence approach, but a blitz style attack. And then there is strangulation. And again, the fact that they're strangled with items that are on their person, that's what we believe, whether it's stockings, knickers, rather than the killer bringing an item with them and taking it away. That's also what they share in common. But I still put the caveat out there. There are probably things at the crime scene that happened and the MO that we don't know a huge amount about. But the fact that they weren't all raped well, that could come down to menstruation, but I don't believe that these crimes are about rape. I do believe that the motivation is power and control and hatred towards women. And this is a perpetrator who has the ability to charm them and to be able to get them from A to B to a place where he can control them and overpower them. Perhaps with the menstruation, that's an anger flashpoint, or perhaps it's just irrelevant and perhaps with Patricia, there was no thorough examination to know whether she was raped or not. And oftentimes, you know, when people say, well, she wasn't raped, it's because they're looking for physical trauma. But she was completely naked. But she was completely naked, yes. So that's also important. So why take the clothes off of one and not the others? Well, again, it could come down to there's something as simple as a noise being heard and the perpetrator has to leave. We don't know all the detail of it, but the fact that she's unclothed, I doubt it's about being forensically aware, right, and trying to hide her clothes. It's much more likely to be some form of sexual motivation. So on, on the strength of just four key facets of what I look at within linkage analysis, it looks much more likely that there may well be one perpetrator. But we can't say absolutely. We can't say that because there are no absolutes with cases. And if there were forensics in any of them that were available, and we know with Helen's case there is, well, there was semen found, but is it the semen of the perpetrator or was it semen from someone else that she had sexual contact with? And that's why whenever I hear someone talking absolutes, it's always problematic. You know, a book being written saying that Bible John and Peter Tobin are one and the same. Well, no one can say that categorically. Actually, most things point to the fact they're not one and the same. But there aren't absolutes, albeit my senses with Patricia, Jemima and Helen, given what we do know, particular victims chosen at a particular time for a particular reason, they share more in common than the things that they don't share in common in terms of what's happened. But how many other murders, how many other rapes, how many other attempt rapes, how many near misses of attacks on women were happening within that geographic region, if you do it on a micro and then a macro, and 
I don't know if if you uncovered whether there were more or, and I'm sure that there were more, but did the police pay attention to any of those other cases and were they ruled in and rule, or ruled out? As what often happens, things are ruled out, but there isn't a key decision-making audit trail for why that happened. And often when things are ruled out, my analysis might not end up with the same conclusion. So there are, there are so many questions still that remain within the case. But I do believe that Police Scotland must do their damn job, quite frankly, because this case has been reviewed, yes, but now with a new lens and with a contemporary female lens. And I think that's really important and what you've brought to it, Audrey. You say, I think it was in an article that I read, you said that, you know, your job wasn't to solve the case, but you've actually done far more than what I've seen in any other effort to actually honour the victims and actually correct the narrative and ask the right questions. Well, thank you. I mean, I don't, I didn't set out to solve the case and I, I don't believe I can. And I still have doubts as to whether it was one man, two or three. I suspect it wasn't one man. I have no proof though. And I have theories. <laughs> Some of them are, you know, you can't really kind of, necessarily go into too much in the podcast but um one of the things that I would say is that we were given the time when we realized that things were going it took quite a long time to actually get the whole thing going but once I kind of broke the whole thing of finding these children that have never had never been spoken about no one had ever found them or, or bothered with them and once we sort of started to get them to speak and everything and realized that this thing was becoming bigger and then the podcast went off in another direction in the sense of, you know, looking at these allegations of a cover-up in the original inquiry and failures in the original inquiry. And then some things about the women, the sighting, possible sighting of Helen later than she'd been seen and everything else, and this not being investigated by the police. This all turned into a really, really big story. And I am very proud of the... And it, and to be very clear, it was not just me. <laughs> there was a fit. It's, we like to say that the we team, we in Scotland means small. We were a small team, call ourselves the we team. And we are very proud of the, the, the work that we did. But we knew that we wouldn't be able to have the final episode and say, and Bible John is. Because as you say, that's chasing a ghost. Yes. And you stayed true to that. And that's why I applaud you and praise you. Um, you stayed true to what the mission was and not doing this big, dramatic, sensationalist reveal, but asking the right questions, being curious and putting all these things together. And that's what's so important. You know, you say you're a journalist, not a detective, but there is far more within the investigation that you've uncovered that now Police Scotland can pick up and properly investigate. And it is with them to, as I always say, do their damn job and to try and correct the narrative. And there are some good people within Police Scotland who are doing work, proactive work around serial perpetrators. And I would hope that they are and have listened and taken note of all the things that you've uncovered and found. And yes, Helen being cited potentially later, potentially running away from home. You know, these are critical bits of information that could point in another direction. And recently with another case where four double homicides have been linked, I've been deconstructing it. Turns out they're not linked. I don't believe that they're linked. Two of them might be linked, 
But if you make an erroneous decision and you group things under one case banner or one moniker through coincidence or maybe through laziness, through not doing your job, then that's as problematic as not linking cases at all. And we've come from a place of being linkage blind but there are more questions to be asked with this particular case. And I think, you know, the fact that, well, Alex, let's go back to Alex Docker, the way that he ends in saying that you and the podcast, and you acknowledge it's your team, gave back to him in some way things about his mother, but also about his own identity. What really chimed with me was was the early episodes when 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 they spoke uh, when it was said the police's summary of these women who had lives and children and feelings and family and everything to label them as spoilt child or highly promiscuous or like to drink to label a person's life in such a way is outrageous and meaningless as well. It had no bearing on the case. Why that judgment was made, I don't know. Misogyny, really, I think. I, I think we're in a better place these days. I don't think things are perfect. And we kind of, we stand from a vantage point here and look back then and think, wow, really? But um, it still goes on. And that, that is the bit, you know, that they somehow marred the memory of these people, Some, summed them up in a couple of sentences. I mean, they didn't know them. Mm. They didn't know the feelings of these people. They didn't know what their lives were. That was what I felt. That was what I shared with these people. But you have been involved in giving a sense of who they were and what they loved and what brought them joy in their lives. The families who've spoken have helped people see them differently and understand that thing that, that you said that, you know, was missing. And you've been a really big part of that. Oh, thank you. I, yeah, I mean, from the limited amount that I can remember of my mother, she was a very loving person and loved me dearly. And I remember snippets of, of Glasgow and a happy little house. Mm which is why it hurts so much when I think of my grandparents and how their lives were, as I say, hollowed out. And this podcast has been great in that respect because it has, it has treated the, the victims' families and, and the victims themselves with the respect that was due to them. And for my part, it's, it's given it back to me, really, in some way. And it's given, given me some of my identity back really so yeah that's been a good it's been a good thing a good thing holy i mean that's just huge that is just an incredible accolade of of what you've done and i go back to the fact that children are often the forgotten victims and the legacy that alex and and the other children have had to live with and when he said, and I'm going to quote him, he said, I wish that somehow I could reach back and save her from her fate. The knowledge that I was a matter of yards away from where this happened distresses me greatly. The women were close to home. 
And that's another very important fact of the case. If they were close to home, the killer was close to their home, probably leaving from A to B, taking them home. And at some point on the journey, they had interacted, whether it's at the Barrowlands or not. So there's some clear timeline information that the police can go back to. But the fact that they were so close to home and that their children were in bed, they were so close to safety. And this is the legacy of male violence. This is the legacy of whether it's one or whether it's two or three. Where I land with it, having taken apart the things that you found, knowing that some things are inconclusive, some things we don't know about, but I still believe if we take the victimology, the modus operandi, the geography and the characteristics of what we know about the person who did this, there are more similarities. There are more things that they share in common than things that point in a different direction that it's not the same individual. Does that take us further forward? Well, it means that more questions need to be asked of what other cases there were in the area. And the due diligence needs to be done. The surviving detectives do need to be interviewed by police officers again. And as you said, memories start to fade. And, you know, time is the biggest enemy in these cases now as memories fade. But you really have done a, an incredible job of bringing to life the women who we knew nothing about. And Patricia and Jemima and Helen, their legacy they shouldn't be remembered by the very worst thing that happened to them. And the very worst thing is this violence and this, which we know is most likely by a man, that that has defined them. And you've given them back their identities and you've given the children back their mother's identity, their family legacy, but also their own sense of identity. And you should be very proud of that. And I mean that wholeheartedly. You've done an incredible thing with this podcast. Thank you. You're making me cry. Well, you made me cry, so I'm <laughs> returning the 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 favor. When I, you know, the Alex Docker episode was just incredible, and I still remember exactly where I was listening to it. And you know, I welled up. It's just such an emotional piece of reporting in his own words, in his own way, that you just left unfiltered. And I thank you for, for doing that. And more people need to be moved by listening to those voices. And perhaps if those detectives had been moved at the very start, rather than having this judgment and this misogyny and characterizing the women in a false way, then maybe these cases would have been solved. And we wouldn't be seeing the same nonsense regurgitated time and time again that the families have to deal with. Your podcast should be the reference and source material that all journalists and police officers must use going forward. And it should be used in police training too, to ensure that these mistakes are not made in the future. That's how important it is. Well, thank you. Let me know if I can be of help. And like I said, I'd much prefer that this narrative was out there coming from the right place and centering the victims and centering the children and the, the family that it involves than these untruths and this faux narrative that's just been going on for decades. So if I can help, please let me know. And I, I hope it's been useful having the conversation as well. I really enjoyed it. So thanks very much. And let's keep in touch. Thanks, Audrey. Okay, I'm diving in here to wrap this two-part series. And I don't believe that that will be the end of my discussions with Audrey. 
But I do believe that this is a starting point of the women, Patricia, Jemima and Helen, being honoured and remembered for the amazing women and mothers that they were. We must not allow them to be remembered or defined by the very worst thing that happened to them. Also, the police reports were inaccurate. The police, as Alex Docker said, had no right judging the victims as they did. It's a false narrative that serves no one other than the perpetrator, and I really hope that Police Scotland and the Procurator Fiscal really are acting on what Audrey has uncovered. It must be a priority. Also, I just want to underline how much of an impact the episode Reflections with Alex Docker about his mother Patricia has remained with me. And as a boy mum, it always will. All those working with victims and their families must listen to this series and this interview. And I include in that the media and crime writers and podcasters and YouTubers and authors. Focusing on the lives of the victims is so important and giving them their dignity back, as well as giving their dignity back to their family. And as Alex Docker said, a part of their identity. You see, it really does matter. And empathy and compassion make a huge difference. What Audrey's done with the podcast Bible John, Creation of a Serial Killer, is an incredible piece of journalism, which shows that there's no need to be voyeuristic or sensationalist when writing or talking about murder and real crime. I've said this across my whole career. Victims should be centred, they should be honoured, and they should be remembered in the right way. And you probably now understand why I wanted to connect to and speak with Audrey. So I'm going to end honouring and remembering Patricia Docker, Jemima MacDonald and Helen Puttock. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.